Two and a Half Admins, episode 82. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, is controlling resource limits with RCTL in FreeBSD. Yeah. So if you want to apply resource limits to a specific user or program or container, you can use RCTL. It allows you to set, you know, only so much RAM or storage or CPU usage, uh, memory usage, and other limits like that, and apply that to a specific user, process, or container. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the first one is Google makes its second largest acquisition ever, $5.4 billion for Mandiant, the security company. Yeah, a big security company. I mean, not big on a scale of Google, but certainly big on a scale of security company. Yeah, well, I think uh, they're pretty close to one of the bigger ones out there. And they uh, they started back in 2004, kind of as a security consultancy, and they got quite big. I remember talking about them a lot on TechSnap back in the day. It's hard to believe that was over 10 years ago now. <laughs> but their kind of threat monitoring platform and their kind of research and, and feeds that they provide their customers, they've been involved in a bunch of the big incidents like the SolarWinds supply chain attack, the Log4j vulnerability, the Pulse Secure VPN vulnerability and a bunch of things like that. And they're often a company that gets called in to investigate after a company gets breached. They go in and figure out what happened and help deal with the cleanup. They provide advisory services and then the threat detection and intelligence and kind of keeping people up to date with what the trends are and what the bad guys are doing. It sounds like Google wants them as part of their cloud offering and they're trying to beef up the security in the cloud and try to grow Google's small share of the worldwide cloud market and try to compete with Amazon and uh, Microsoft. Yeah, Mandiant and its employees are also, uh, they're a source for a lot of truly excellent open source InfoSec tools. I first became aware of Mandiant personally when I attended a talk uh, given by Doug Burke on uh, his really excellent tool, Security Onion, which uh, bolts together a bunch of open source InfoSec tools into one relatively cohesive hole that you can you know run on a single server and monitor your entire network. I don't feel really great about Google acquiring Mandiant, to be honest. Again, you know, on a scale of Google, Mandiant doesn't really seem all that large. But on the scale of the InfoSec world, they really are the 900-pound gorilla. And it's just a little disquieting for a company that already has so much control over all of our data to now pull in so much of the existing InfoSec capacity out there. You know, luckily, we're, this is not a, a court of law or testifying in front of the Senate, and I don't have to back anything up too concretely, but I just don't really like the antitrust feeling of that whole thing. You know, marrying Google's control of advertising and, you know, de facto reconnaissance of everybody's activity on the internet with Mandiant's InfoSec chops it's kind of a nasty combination from where I sit. Yeah, and even just beyond that with Google's reputation for shuttering services and stuff, Mandiant's a company that you call to come in and work on your stuff, right? They're like a consultancy. And that's not really a service that Google normally provides. And so how much longer is all of Mandiant's stuff available to people? And at what point does it become the only way to get that service is by putting your stuff in Google Cloud and, and having it that way, where it's kind of a built-in thing. Well, and too much of Google's business model already revolves around trying to get their fingers on as much data as they possibly can to feed their models. And there's so much of the world that is actively trying really hard to keep Google's fingers 
out of their data. So then to now say that, you know, the, the really big, really well-known company that you could bring in and, you know, trust to investigate everything after a really nasty incident. Oh, by the way, that's owned by Google, who really wants to get their fingers on everybody's data now. It's just, it's kind of a conflict of interest, I think. Well, especially, you know, the other main thing Mandiant does is, hey, install the, the Mandiant Advantage platform inside your network and we'll monitor all your network traffic for threats. Yep. And if we're going to, suddenly that involves feeding that to Google and suddenly I don't want that anymore. Facts. And it'll be a real shame for them to spend $5 billion to ruin Mandiant. <laughs> so I don't want to get too political with this, but we have to talk about Russia and the technical aspects of the sanctions that have been imposed on them. A couple of backbone providers have pulled out, Cogent and Lumen, and also Russia is looking at quite a problem when it comes to storage. Well, the storage is a much stickier kettle of fish, if you'll pardon uh, a, a really badly mixed metaphor. I feel like we should talk about the network thing first. So it's a really big deal that Cogent and Lumen are both, you know, pulling themselves out of Russia in one sense, but in another sense, it's really not that big of a deal at all because they're pulling themselves out of Russia geographically, not politically. They are actually still serving Russian ISPs, just the parts of those Russian ISPs that happen to be across the Russian border. So the net impact is, you know, the routes might get a little bit more awkward, but if you are in Russia and you need to get your traffic in or out, you know, to the rest of the world, you can still do so on both of those backbone providers. You might just have a few extra Russian hops before you get to them. Although I know some other internet exchanges in the UK have, have considered trying to de-peer Russian providers from their networks as well. But yeah, in this case, we're looking at Cogent and Lumen, which used to be level three. So that's like one of the main backbones for the internet. And then the bits that of the internet you could still reach from Russia. Russia was, you know, blocking services like Facebook and, and social media and otherwise somewhat cutting itself off from the inside as well. And it's interesting. We also saw the conversation about, you know, ICANN and RIPE talking about that. ICANN got a request from a bunch of people to like just disable all of RU. And they're like, nah, we think weaponizing that is probably a bad thing for the open internet. And I think I agree with that as much as we want to pressure Russia. I don't know that disconnecting the domains uh, would accomplish much. Putin might actually be happy about that. Right. And and setting that precedent that ICANN can do that, I think, is dangerous for the rest of the internet. I think a lot of people are going to miss the fine detail that, you know, we, we touched on already a little bit that, you know, Cogent and Lohman quote, pulling out of Russia, unquote, does not mean much when they're still peering literally with Ruskomnadzor, the Russian-owned ISP. The fact that they're only now peering with them outside the Russian borders means nothing because the internal backbone of Ruskomnadzor itself is still fully functional to get all the way out to the internet. So do we really care whether that final handoff point happens technically within the borders of Russia or not? I find it kind of hard to care personally. Yeah, this is mostly about shutting down their operations at actual Russian data centers, right? Having their switches go dark and the the fibers leading in there and shutting down their basically their data center operations. Now, some of that is going to reduce some capacity. But it does not actually shut down the data center and make it go dark. (laughs) No, it's just just all the cogent stuff in there. And like if you were uh, a smaller Russian company and you bought your bandwidth from cogent and not from a Russian provider because you didn't want to be subject to the same level of censorship, then you might end up needing to pivot and connect somewhere else. But that's 
something we expect in a lot of these cases anyway. So yeah, it's mostly about shutting down their data center. And like we'll get to uh, in the next story, uh, means that a bunch of cloud providers shut down all the services they were offering at data centers within Russia and how that's affecting things. Make it a lot harder to watch your non-Russian telly when there's no longer any you know, local Netflix or, or what have you. Yeah, so isn't the result of this going to be just more insulation of the Russian population and sort of uh, splinter net is the, the term that gets bandied around? I think that would be the case possibly if Cogent and Lumen actually cut ties with Roskomnadzor rather than, you know, literally the physical border. As it is, it's still not hard to get in or out of, you know, the Russian part of the Internet. So I don't think it has that much effect at all other than, you know, being a significant inconvenience, I suppose, to a lot. But yeah, if they actually cut off all ties with Roskomnadzor, I, I think then you'd be saying exactly what you're talking about. It would be a step towards the North Koreaization of Russia, if you'll uh, pardon a, a manufactured word on the spot. Mm. Right. And I, I threw an extra link in the show doc. There is uh, some of the CDNs like Akamai and Cloudflare are saying why they're not disconnecting everything from Russia. And again, that's partly because any sites trying to host information that we want Russian people to be able to see need the protection of the CDNs to not just get, you know, DDoSed off the internet or, or be able to be more easily disconnected. So I think that moves us on to the next topic, which is the storage shortage in Russia. Now, this is a lot more severe, and the short version of it is it has gotten extremely difficult to acquire new hard drives in Russia. And especially because of that, more things trying to use the cloud, but it turns out the cloud is made out of hard drives too, right? So according to the Russian news outlet, Commerçant. There was a, a big meeting uh, held by the Russian government, uh, the Ministry of Digital Transformation, and they brought in uh, Spurbank, MTS, uh, Oxygen, Rostelcom, Atom Data, Croc, Yandex, and a bunch of other big providers in Russia. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to get enough storage because currently they estimate they have about two months left before they run out of space in the cloud. And then because of the sanctions, a bunch of firms that were operating cloud storage services are shutting down. And that means that, you know, Russian firms are forced to turn to domestic cloud services in order to keep their infrastructure online. And those cloud services suddenly need a fivefold increase in the amount of storage they need. And, you know, you can't buy more storage right now. So what do you do? So this has created an insurmountable practical problem as there's not enough data centers and, and hard drives in Russia to accommodate the needs of the local operators. So now they're looking at what to do about that, which might involve just seizing the assets of companies that have pulled out. So, you know, if you operated a data center in Russia and because of the sanctions you pulled out, they might just take your equipment and use it to, to buy themselves more space. Talk about your Band-Aid on a sucking chest wound, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that, that might buy you a week or two. You don't know what you've got. You've got to assimilate all of it. You know, you can't do it twice. There's only one. Now, I think that we should talk more about the implications of this because they're kind of the opposite of the network balkanization, where we talk about, you know, separating the, in, the, the inside of Russia from the rest of the world from a network perspective. We don't really know exactly how, you know, Putin and his cronies might feel about that, but it's not hard for me to imagine they might love that. It would make it more difficult to counteract, you know, Russian state propaganda to Russian citizens, make it easier to push their own narratives and keep, you know, foreign narratives out. And meanwhile, you know, all your internal communications are still functional. 
your logistics still work. Having an internal network separated from the outside world, maybe not the worst thing. Now, on the other hand, with the network connections intact, but without the ability to buy, you know, more storage to continue expanding, now you're talking about crippling exactly the kinds of things that the Russian state needs. It begins having problems making its own logistics work. It begins having problems with places to host its own propaganda because they they can't put it out in the outside world. It needs to be internal. But where do you freaking save it? Uh, You know, Russia manufactures its own networking equipment. It does not manufacture its own hard drives. Turns out there are only three remaining hard drive manufacturers in the world, and none of them are in Russian-controlled territory. Now, this doesn't necessarily rule out everything. One might imagine a world in which Russia has to pivot entirely to solid-state storage. It's a lot easier to get access to, uh, you know, to, to solid state storage because it's, it's so much more electronically generic. It's not as specialized. A lot of people, you know, make NAND flash, but it's still a heck of a lot more expensive when you're talking about the kind of, you know, massive volume bulk storage that you need to make the internet go. That would not be a simple pivot. I don't know what Russia's reserves for, you know, NAND manufacturing really are, I think it would be easier to spin that industry up basically from scratch when you have to, you know, the kind of situation they're looking at right now. I do not think it would be practical at all to try to reinvent hard drives, uh, you know, in engineering from nothing. You could do it with NAND, but just again, whew. Could just buy a ton of cheap SD cards off AliExpress, maybe. <laughs> well, the problem with buying anything is that your currency is in free fall and is worth less and less every day, and it becomes really difficult to buy stuff. Even if anybody's willing to sell it to you to begin with. Yep. And then you can tell how bad it is when the Ministry of Digital De- uh, Development has amended a law they enacted in 2016 that required telecom operators to increase the storage capacity allocated for anti-terrorism surveillance purposes by 15% each year. But since they can't buy any more storage, they're like, all right, we'll, we'll back off on that one. It's interesting in the other part, they talk about, you know, this happens to not very well coincide with Russian agencies' storage needs growing uh, because of their new smart city projects that involve extensive video surveillance and facial recognition. Kind of hard to make that go without storage and a lot of it. One of the options they're looking at, which I found quite interesting, is basically forcing entertainment providers to delete content to reuse that space. So basically like purging the video streaming boxes of all the copies of, of movies people would stream and use that space for surveillance or whatever other needs the government has. Now, are you talking about set-top boxes or are you talking about the in the data center? No, no, like the data center side, like the Netflix catalog boxes that are just full of gotcha. storage and, and hold all the, the video on demand content and stuff like that. It didn't make sense to talk about that in terms of set-top boxes, but that would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> reinvent one of the like, storage-based cryptocurrencies. <laughs> No more Mr. Bean, comrade. <laughs> Must store surveillance footage. <laughs> uh, just take over everybody's home DVRs and fill them with files. Make a distributed uh, IPFS or whatever. <laughs> That's it, Alan. You just solved their problems. They've got an internet connection so they can just save everything to IPFS. Problem solved. We can move on. Pose law repellent. No, you cannot just save everything to IPFS and move on in case anybody wasn't sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> the final option they have is, you know, 
turning to Chinese cloud service providers and IT system sellers and so on. But that's currently complicated because China has not yet decided if it's willing to flout the Western sanctions on Russia. Um, for example, even Huawei has reportedly suspended equipment sales to Russia until another two weeks or so from now while they consider their options there. Although knowing that Huawei itself is sanctioned in the US and not allowed to roll out 5G in, in all of the EU, they might try to still grasp that business opportunity since they don't have many other places they can sell it. They might, but I mean, the Chinese state is not exactly known for being like flighty and silly. Can you yeah. imagine the freaking terms they would negotiate <laughs> if they become like the only major power that's willing to trade with Russia? Yep. Ooh. <laughs> yes. It's like, we'll buy everything. We'll take payment in like oil and gold, not not your funny money. <laughs> oil, gold, and firstborn. <laughs> okay. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do a bit of feedback then. Richard wrote to us about the digits file system replacement that we talked about recently. You mentioned the problem of finding all images when there are many different image file extensions. This sort of thing is a common problem in biology and biomedical sciences, and we often resolve it with ontologies in a directed acyclic graph form rather than a nested hierarchy. This gives us a controlled vocabulary of search terms and the ability to have many-to-one relationships between those terms. You could have a file type ontology that acts as the basis for building a file search index that lets you search on categories of file. If you search for image, you get all files reachable from the image term in the graph. You can do this for any terms you like, including very general things like binary versus text or lossy versus losslessly compressed. Any conceptual category can be represented like session slash project files, which could group together things like Audacity project AUP files, Inkscape SVGs, and any other file that is used to save a working session in a particular piece of software. I don't know if a general file type ontology exists. I didn't find one in the 30 seconds of web searching I spared on the question, but one doesn't think it would be a useful resource to have. Yeah, I think my biggest thing there is that almost everybody would want a slightly different ontology, right? It makes sense in research like that where you know specifically what types of things you're going to have, but when you try to generalize it to be all files that might be on anybody's computer, it gets more complicated, especially if you uh, your ontology ends up having to be static, where you know we have to know it when we write the file, we can't go back and change it later. It's depending on how you structured the file system, you might be able to make it so you can do that. I know there's a feature in ZFS to tag, I think it's a specific directories as being part of a project, so that you can do things like, show me how much disk space this project is using 
I don't know if it's within a data set or if it's even possibly across multiple data sets, but you might be able to do something like that as well. I think the biggest problem is it comes down to the same root problem is still there of categorizing every possible type of file into that ontology. You know, you can have images and then more specifically JPEGs and so on, or, uh, but there are so many file types where file systems where the file extension doesn't matter or doesn't even exist. And so you're down to what type of file is this and how do we get something that's general enough but specific enough? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, from a, a little bit less academic perspective, it still boils down to the concept that you have a database grafted onto your file system, which is what allows these many-to-one relationships, and you can make it as complex or as simple as you would like. And ideally, you know, this this bolted-in database gets updated in real time as files are written. Part of the problem becomes when we talk about this really grand vision where you're tracking, like, all the things, you know, Images and audio, multimedia versus non-multimedia, you know, compressed or not, lossy or lossless compression, all these different things, they can all be tracked. And it's not hard to track all those things and to, you know, just build a simple database that allows many-to-one relationships to let you get it as granular as you want. The problem is that you can't really just track every single thing that everybody might want to know on all the machines because now you've just you've bolted on way too many small IO operations for every single file read or write that you're making on the system, and it's going to become unwieldy. Uh, you can have a certain percentage of that and probably not really see any significant added storage load at all. But now you're left in the position of picking and choosing which one of these bits do I want. And we're probably not even going to have the same answers amongst the three of us, mm-hmm. let alone everybody. And if you try to turn everything on and track all the things on all the files, then you end up with, uh, you know, a, an underperforming monstrosity. Yeah. Just thinking about it, I've suddenly started envisioning the, the way directories are implemented in ZFS is basically a, a, a key value store called a zap. And that when you write a file, you could connect that object number to a zap of all the ones that are images or something if... ZFS had a way to tell that this file was an image, which it doesn't really at the moment. But that really almost comes down to the same thing as just having a directory called images and hard linking every image in its normal place and putting hard linking an extra copy of it in the images directory. So you can just open images and see all your images. But like Jim said, the problem with that is, you know, you get that extra metadata operation every time you write an image. And if all you're doing that for is images, sure. But if you have this kind of hierarchy and you end up with oh, that's an image and a JPEG and a family photo and something done in March, and you end up writing, you know, eight links to it, uh, you're writing a lot of extra metadata every time you modify a file. If only one of those is one you're ever going to use, then it was most uh, a waste of a lot of effort. Tyler wrote in, My dystopian nation of Australia has a particular law that all SMSs, phone calls, and internet browsing must be tied to your name and address and logged by all ISPs for at least two years. Numerous state and federal police forces and government commissions can access this data, including at the request of foreign police forces. And then he puts a link in for that. The devil I know in this case is worse than the devil I don't. I would much rather trust VPN provider when they say they don't keep logs over the ISP I know for certain does. I mean, it makes sense. Just again, you should be aware of what your threat profile really is and not overestimate what that VPN provider is doing for you. Yes, it may keep things from being like 
weirdly searchable for odd reasons for marketing or just, I don't know, thought crime or whatever from the government, but don't expect that that's just going to make it really easier for you to, I, I don't know, sell heroin to a few thousand people. Like there's, there's ways around it. And there's also the matter of if you don't want to be the person that stands out, you know, if, if the ISP has to log everything everybody does, you can be like, this one customer over here has never gone to any website ever because they always use a VPN. I wonder why that is. You know, you might end up finding yourself having additional scrutiny because you've had all your traffic over a VPN. So it depends. Are you just trying to hide what you're doing or are you trying to blend in with the crowd and not draw attention to yourself? It does seem like a fairly compelling argument, though, if you know that you're being logged. You may as well take the risk of hopefully not being logged with a VPN provider that you trust. Well, you know, as, as long as it's not illegal in your dystopian nation of Australia to use the VPN in the first place, what's the downside, right? Maybe the Australian government manages to somehow get all that information from the VPN provider anyway, and... How does that make you any worse than you started? My real point was just don't just think, oh, I have a VPN so I can do absolutely any shady thing I want. And like, you know, farce field. Nope, doesn't work that way. Exactly. And also don't think if I don't get a VPN, they're going to steal my credit card because that's what the ad on YouTube said. <laughs> Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to learn more about that. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or your questions for Jim and Alan, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which a lot of people have been doing recently. This time, it's Top Slacker. I've been using Sanoid and Syncoid for many years to great effect. Thanks for making them available, Jim. The only issue I've ever had with it is with Nagios checks. They're always flapping. It would seem Nagios tends to check the status at a point where Sanoid thinks the data is stale, but lacks the access to refresh it. This then causes the NRPE to return a status of unknown once every 15 minutes. I've tried a few things to resolve this to varying degrees of success, but I was curious how you handle this, or, in fact, if this is something you run into. And then uh, there's a link to a discussion on Reddit about this. Yeah, the, the thread on Reddit explains the, the source of the problem in a little more detail. I believe Top Slacker's specifically talking about the monitor snapshots check, which can work without sudo if it happens to have a fresh copy of the, you know, the, the snapshot cache that Sanoid keeps for itself. However, it will fail if uh, Sanoid then has to go and refresh the cache because it doesn't have permissions when it's running under the, the Nagios user ID. This is not something I'd ever actually considered because it never occurred to me to try to run it as a non-privileged user and rely on Sanoid's own cache for that to begin with. Uh, when I use Sanoid monitor snapshots or monitor health, you know, from Nagios, I actually have my plugins defined in a directory that uh, runs, you know, with pseudo privileges. So the uh, the plugin itself, which just calls Sanoid dash dash monitor snapshots or Sanoid dash dash monitor health. It actually calls them with sudo in front, and that specific plugin is allowed to do that. So you can't necessarily, Nagios isn't allowed to just run Sanoid with whatever arguments it feels like, but that particular Nagios plugin that makes that exact command with the arguments already supplied, monitor snapshots or monitor health, 
that runs with sudo, so it runs as root, so it doesn't matter if it needs to refresh the cache or not, because it's got all the privileges it needs to do that. And it's relatively safe, because again, all NERPY can do is run sanoid-monitor snapshots. It can't run sanoid-cron or sanoid-prune, whatever, none of all that. All it can do is literally run the Nagios check as root. So the cache file is mostly about what's on the other side? No. So the cache file is local to that machine. Its Mm. purpose is because, as you know, if you have a lot of snapshots on the machine, uh, a ZFS list-t snapshot operation can become uh, a significant amount of storage load, can take a long time to complete. Um, Having a local cache with a configurable interval for how often it's refreshed both reduces the load that you're putting on the system, you know, with, with constantly trying to figure out what your snapshot condition is. It also allows you to not have to consider that when you set how frequently Sanoid runs. So you might want to say, well, I want to make sure that Sanoid is expiring stale snapshots and taking new ones if necessary every minute, but I don't want Sanoid to have to enumerate every single snapshot on the system every minute. And in some cases on some systems, that might not even be possible. And you can end up sending yourself into kind of a death spiral where the last Sanoid run didn't complete before the next one starts if it's trying to, you know, list every single snapshot every single time you run it. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.